0: Let's do it. Welcome to Healing the City podcast. Today I have a very special guest, Amanda Marquardt. We're all very special here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's why I say it. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, today we're going to talk about a little bit about you and some of your passions and your work. Amanda and I have known each other uh, since David and I returned to Tucson in 2015. For like you,
1: three years. Mm-hmm. And yes.
0: your family was had been attending the village since? Yes. Um,
1: 2012, uh-huh. maybe? Yeah. Okay. So Except f- that I just did the math wrong and I said we've known each other for three years, but it's 2019, almost 2020. Right.
0: So it's almost five years. Yeah. I'm <laughs> good at math. I can't believe that we have been back uh, in Tucson for five years. That's yeah. really crazy. It goes fast, huh? And we both have three kids. Mm-hmm. Oldest two are boys. Mm-hmm. And then our third is... That's true. Girl. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Similar ages. Yours are mm-hmm. just older than mine. Just a little bit. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we have a lot in common. We both enjoy um, different outlets of fitness mm-hmm. and passionate about caring for people yeah. and seeing the marginalized. Yes, so I'm excited yeah, it's about. It's always
1: it. wonderful to talk to you. Yes, yes. I agree. Like
0: ex- yes. Get it, girl. Get it. <laughs> yeah. So today I just wanted to talk to you about your work um in the psych hospital and working with um, patients and give me the correct terminology Mm -hmm. when we're referring to patients. Yeah.
1: Well, gosh, it it really depends on where you work and, and everybody's always wrestling with, do we call them members? Do we call them clients? Do we call them patients? Do we, you know, so it depends on where you're at, but in the psych hospital, because it was a hospital, they did refer to them as
0: patients. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about patients um, in a psych hospital who are there for, Different amounts of time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's start back up a little bit and tell me about how you got this job yeah. and and the path in that direction. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I had done my undergrad work and then moved into um, focusing on building a family and kind of getting that started. Um, and I did a lot of community work and volunteering with different nonprofits and different community agencies for, for that time. Um, In my life in 2016, I went back to complete my master's and move into my more formal career Um, And so I decided that I wanted to try to get at least a year's worth of Like formal mental health experience before I graduated Um, And I wanted to my goal in life is kind of always to experience broadly Mm -hmm. And I want to touch a lot of different stories Um, and a lot of different people and so I I had had a lot of experience in the previous 10 years in working individually or working with families and like a more traditional what we think of as as what a counselor does of like we're gonna sit and we're gonna talk through your story and try to find ways to grow so I wanted to do something different Um, and there was a position open that met my qualifications at a local psychiatric hospital, a level one. So a level one just means that it's the most severe, Um, so it's the most restrictive environment. Um, All of the doors are locked. They're under 15-minute checks, sometimes five-minute checks, depending on their behaviors and struggles. Sometimes they have a one-to-one where they have a Employee that's specifically assigned to them and can't be further than arm length away. So it's a very restrictive environment um, for safety reasons. So I was hired as therapeutic activities and recreation specialist, uh, was my official title. So I was there basically to provide healing and regulation through leisure Mm
0: -hmm. and.
1: Um, art, art therapy. Um, I ended up doing a lot of movement therapy because art therapy is, is somewhat common. So it was a little easier to find that for the hospital. Um, but I, so I came in and did a lot of yoga and meditation and movement.
0: And when a patient participates in this program, yeah. is it mandatory or is it? Um, something that they choose.
1: Yeah, so for the adults it was completely optional and they highly encouraged it because otherwise they're just sitting there not doing anything
0: so they might wake up and here's the schedule of things that are happening around the hospital today that you could participate in yes and so they had
1: like a structured schedule Uh and and that's one of the things that um an environment like that can provide that is regulating is a schedule Mm -hmm. um so sometimes when you're dealing with um, a serious mental illness um, or going through a time of high stress one of the first things that falls away is regular schedule so you start to have trouble with maintaining a regular sleep schedule and you know getting things done and paying your bills and going to work so one of the things that's good about those environments is that it can re-regulate by giving them a structured environment Mm -hmm. so it was optional for the adults uh, but very encouraged and for the kids you know they say like it was required um but there were definitely times that they you Know if a kid was really pushing back, like they weren't going to fight with them and, and risk an escal- escalation because the kid didn't want to go do, do yoga, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so in this type, in this type one hospital, mm-hmm. there are young, under 18, yeah. and over 18 yes, patients, yeah. So
1: in this particular one, there are um, patients down to as young as five. And so there um, are not a lot of places that take kids under the age of 11 or 12. So in the state of Arizona, there's only two um, outside the state hospital. So there's one here in Tucson and one in Phoenix. Um, So if you have a kiddo, you know, between the age of 5 to 11, it can be really hard to find placement for them when they're having really serious behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so we worked, I worked with kids from as young as 5 to adults um, you know, geriatrics all the way up. So lots of different stories, lots of different struggles.
0: And uh, and while you were working there, you were able to really have eyes on some of the things that mm-hmm. you wanted to change and things that you hoped yeah. to be able to impact yeah. the hospital in, in a positive way.
1: Yeah. So when I came in, you know, I came in of course like we all do, like bright eyed and bushy tailed of like, mm-hmm. yeah, all right, let's go do this, right? And what I found, I think, is not uncommon, unfortunately, but um, there was a lot of things that I really took issue with as far as how the hospital was run and the care that was being provided to the patients. Um, And so I I brought that to the attention of the leadership of the hospital and and basically said, you know, from my part-time You know, bottom of the rung of the ladder. Like, look, these are the problems that I see going on here, and I'm concerned about the ethics and um, just the quality of patient care that's lacking. And if you guys don't want to fix it, that's up to you. But I'm going to quit because I'm I would feel complicit in sustaining a system that I don't feel is doing justice
0: to their patients.
1: And to my surprise, they said, okay help us fix it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wait,
0: (laughs) shoot. Now I have to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
1: And, and so I was really happy for that opportunity, but also understood like, like the, the magnitude of what I was going to try to do, where it was like, this was just going to be a part-time job while I try to finish grad school. And I don't know if, if I'm up to that, um, but I'm going to try. So I did. And they eventually titled it um, the therapeutic educator and, um, my job was to provide um, education to the staff um, from the behavior techs to the nurses to the um, medical providers on trauma-informed care and on basic mental health. It was surprising me- to me to learn that um, most of the staff uh was more medical than mental health so there were one to two social workers per unit um and and, and not how a lot of and how many people are in a unit tw- like 20 18 to 20
0: so one social worker for 40 people w-
1: no, 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 no. Like two for 20. Two
0: for 20. Yeah, okay. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And so, um, and that's not uncommon. Like that's a very standard structure in, in, in mental health hospitals. And so I talked with a lot of people um, in my grad program who were also like interning or working at a psychiatric hospital and and found like, oh, yeah, this is really, this is just kind of how it goes. And this is the way psych hospitals are run nowadays. And a lot of it has to do with limitations of insurance um, that they're. There's very strict um, limits on how much an insurance company will cover um, for crisis care. And so the hospitals are really in a bind to try and um, provide good care uh, with wraparound services. And they do, you know, a heck of a job trying to step into these really, really tough situations. But what the people that are involved in like the day-to-day care care, Um, and the moment by moment care are medical professionals, professionals, not mental health professionals. So, you know, there could be nurses that are coming right out of nursing school who didn't really like maybe did a rotation on the psych unit. Um, and, and so they don't really have a a base knowledge of mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, and so part of my job was to try to provide some more education to the, um, to the medical personnel that were responsible for their moment to moment care um and it was also to like try to develop more trauma informed interventions mm-hmm. and programming for the patients cuz that's something i think that is a like a revolution that's going on within the mental health world not just in psych hospitals but across the field in counseling is um now that we have all of this information and new perspective on trauma and how it impacts mental health and well-being how do we now integrate that into all of the little facets how, what does that look like to apply that information at a psych hospital or at a residential treatment facility or you know in the counseling room right and so that's part of what I was wrestling with and you know I give kudos to to the hospital for allowing me to do that and trying to walk on that journey with me um so that was really good, but it it was also it was a struggle. Like you have a lot of competing interests in um, in any kind of healthcare organization, medical or mental health. Um, it's a for-profit hospital. And when it comes down to it, same as in the medical world, the bottom line is, dollars Mm -hmm. it's the dollars right it has it they say like it has to be I don't know if I agree with that but that is what it is
0: sure so it was it was a struggle for sure it was a struggle so one of the things that we so we share a common interest in this idea of institutions and caring for people because my son as listeners know has down syndrome and so my journey to motherhood with him has been learning about the history of disabilities and in mm-hmm. institutions. Mm-hmm. And we know in the disability world that institutions don't work. Right. And that as families were dropping off children by the hundreds and these facilities were overcrowded, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your outlook was and your intention of a place right. was when it gets overwhelmed and under trained staff and the amount of problems and and death and corruption mm-hmm. and, and lack of quality care that happens yeah. is unfathomable. Right. And most people have no idea. Right. So I'm guessing because I don't have experience mm-hmm. with psychiatric hospitals mm-hmm. that there are things that I can't imagine yeah. that happen in there. Yeah. And without ill-speaking of a specific place, can you tell us maybe – and it could be based on documentaries it could be based on your mm-hmm. experience on whatever yeah. knowledge that you've gleaned over the years share give us maybe a snapshot of of what it would be like to be an impatient and then yeah. let's talk about a philosophical yeah, yeah approach like, to how we yeah. and how we as a culture continue to marginalize and don't want to be affected by people yeah. who are different yes um,
1: yeah 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 no that's a really I, I think that highlights that this is not a Problem. This was not a struggle that is uncommon for anybody that's working in a psychiatric facility. And it's not like, oh, I was the champion who was concerned about this and nobody else was. That's not the case. Like there were a lot of people who were very concerned. And I did see the leadership of the hospital trying to find the balance between we have you know, pressure to be able to keep this place running and at the same time provide quality care. Like, how can we do this? How can we meet both ends? My voice was to advocate for quality care, you mm-hmm. know, and so it was uh, easier for me to stay focused and really hold the standard high of, of patient care. But I also understand the situation that they were in, that they also have the weight of we have keep this place open right and and it is a, a tricky balance because while I don't I, I wish that we as a society had a different way of supporting people with serious mental illness that is what we have right now and the reality is that if that hospital were to shut down tomorrow there would be a lot of people um, who are unsafe and who are at risk of wandering the streets when they're in the middle of a psychotic break and harming themselves or somebody else or somebody who is having suicidal ideations um, who completes suicide because they didn't have somewhere safe to go. Um, For all its flaws, I think it is doing some good. Um, But I I think exactly what, what you're saying that we as a society need to pull back and say, Is this working? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it working? And it's, it's, I don't think it's working as well as it could. Um, so, I think people have, you know, from things like popular culture, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or, you know, different, different, um, understandings of what it means to be
0: in a, which was a film house, that came out, what, in the, the early nineties. S- oh, was, was it? It that oh, was like that the seventies, like oh, Jack Nicholson uh,
1: when he was young. So eight, I, 70s, 80s? I, don't I know. oh, you're
0: right. Cause they were performing lobotomies. Yes, so yeah. I saw that film. Yeah. Right after Bentley was born yeah. and I lost it for a really long time Yeah, because <laughs> it was devastating yes. to imagine that this is what we were doing to people's brains to fix them when yes. we have no idea. We have we, no idea. We yeah. still don't know enough about no. the brain to be doing surgeries and right. things like that. So, right. okay. So, yeah. And it is a, an
1: interesting intersection because the, the asylum system um, at that time really was not just about... Mental health. It wasn't about necessarily uh, taking care of people who were psychotic or suicidal. It was basically anybody that we felt was indigent or a burden. So that included mm-hmm. people that had um, developmental delays or physical disabilities. Immigrants. Immigrants. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, racial and ethnic. Uh, Crimes. I feel like that happened. That mm-hmm. that they were forced into um, what was supposed to be mental health facilities. Um, but yeah. So
0: it's important to know that it's never been done well. We've never, no. as a society, in any you know span of time.
1: Uh, and I think in in any society that has utilized the asylum system um, to attempt to care for people with. Things That could potentially be a burden um, on the people around them. No, Mm -hmm. I don't think that we have done that well. So the asylum system, I think, is most famous for being started in England. uh, And I'm trying to remember the exact dates. I think it was in the 1800s. And I mean, it was basically a system where uh, there was a facility that was built to be able to take people to that ranged from anything from somebody who was depressed, although they didn't have that word for it at the time, to these could be depressed people, alcoholic people, uh, people with mental delays with cognitive delays developmental disabilities uh people that just weren't liked in the community really and they could come up with and make an excuse of why this person was dangerous and needed to be in the asylum and it really was a house of horrors there's no question about it um people were chained down people were tortured people were massively neglected Mm -hmm. it was really ugly In the United States, we continued that kind of a system um, once our country um, kind of got got a hold of those institutions. And things started to get better. uh, I believe it was in the early 1900s when there started to be some work around advocacy, and that's where it starts, and that's kind of what we're talking about today, is that people have no idea what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so how do you fix a problem you don't even know exists? Right. Right? And so that is what the work then of of those early advocates was to say, you guys, this isn't okay. Like, mm-hmm. this is what's going on. But then also to convince people that just because somebody has higher needs for to be successful in our society doesn't necessarily mean that they deserve to be outcast and abandoned. Right right And so the the tie to the asylum system really happened I feel when we began to move away from communal living into a more industrialized individualistic structure for society mm-hmm. Because before that, and if you look into societies that currently handle um, what we would call mental illness that handle it well, it, it's always that these people are embedded in a community, that the community doesn't say because you have a cognitive delay or you have psychosis or schizophrenia or depression or any of these other things. That doesn't mean that I get to cast you out. It right. means that we're going to support you and wrap you up. Right. Right. And so these people that we in um, in first world countries send out and cast out In communal societies, they embed them even deeper Mm -hmm. into the community. They increase the ties that these people have, even giving them places of honor in the community.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's good to, I always like to bring things back to like a practical, you know, level Mm -hmm. in addition to talking about the philosophy. And I have a friend who adopted some children who really struggled behaviorally and have a slew of diagnoses and they were treated so poorly Mm -hmm. because her kids struggled and so she would take them to the park. Mm -hmm. And instead of moms talking to her Mm -hmm. and and figuring out ways so that the kids could play together, they were always treated like they didn't belong there and Mm -hmm. her sons were too violent and Mm -hmm. too much of a problem. And so they are raised in a world where no one loves them and wants to play with them. And so if you're in the park... And you see a child that's really struggling, you know, engage the mom or or have we need to be talking to our children about how to play with kids who are difficult and how to help them, you know, deescalate and maybe let them win or let them guide the play. Mm -hmm. But those are tools that take building and and it takes trusting that our kids are capable Mm And that we're capable Mm -hmm. of loving and caring Mm -hmm. for people with high needs, rather than oh, I'm going to go to the park and sit back and look at my phone, and my kids will play, and it'll be fine. Well, Mm -hmm. wait, what's happening? This kid's kid's hitting
1: him. Yeah, he's
0: can't. Why? Why is this mom bringing him here? What's wrong? You know? Yeah, and I'm going to give
1: him the stink eye and go chew that mom out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like that's where a lot of these um, issues come from Um, in, you know, to the extreme of like, yeah, it's like hospital, but even day to day um, with kids that are experiencing problem behaviors uh, that we do tend to like cast them out. right? Right. So one of the struggles that I face in my current work, it's very common when a kid is having problems in the school. What happens? Suspension, expulsion. Mm -hmm. right let's send them to an alternative schooling program yeah somebody
0: Uh, who's better trained
1: right but it's not that they're better trained and like I love the schools and I'm not trying to like throw them under the bus but I think like you said it doesn't matter what the intention is because I think the school's often have very good intentions and they're weighing a lot of intricacies of how do you support these kids that are having behavior problems without also um, impacting the other kids but there's the fallacy right there is that we think that when somebody's having a problem we need to separate them Mm -hmm. because we don't want to like contaminate the other kids what if we had systems built in to our communities at every level, on the playground, in the schools, with our medical professionals, with our um, probation offices, with our court systems that said, not how do we separate this kid and and put the burden of rehabilitation completely on them and on the family, but how do we as a community come around them Mm -hmm. and embed them in a system that's going to be supportive and Mm going to wrestle with... What do you do when when, you know, you're a five year old kid who came out of the foster care system and you're really dysregulated and so you bite people? Right. Right. Um, Which is a totally normal behavior for for that kid's story. And the common response is for other families to get upset instead of understanding them and saying, how can we support this? Mm -hmm. How can we support this family? And it is a journey and it does take wrestling and it does take conversation. Um, And so I want to avoid saying, oh, I saw problems in the psychiatric community. It's the hospital's fault because that's the easy thing to do. Right. Right. But that system is built on what we as a culture value, right? Which is that if you are problematic, that you need to go away, right? Right, or even to classify that behavior as problematic in the first place, mm-hmm. right? That somebody with Down syndrome—that's a problem, right? Right. So I read an article years ago about a mother who um, was living in France. She was—I think she was Canadian—and she was living in France at the time, and she had a child that was born with down syndrome and it was the case that in france there's a lot of um, prenatal genetic testing so that if they find a child that is going to have a birth defect right there's even defect right saying like something's wrong with you um, but if they're, they're gonna have potentially a problem that the recommendation is often to abort mm-hmm. and so because that happens there's no supports for people who have children with Down syndrome. Right. Because there aren't enough kids in that country to need the service. Right. Right. Um, so that's kind of a, one example of how we can kind of wrap ourselves by, by saying that this is a defect mm-hmm. and we need to send it away. Right. It sets us up. For systems that are overworked, mm-hmm. um, for people who are under-supported, and a s- problem
0: that spirals out of control. So you've been listening to Healing the City podcast with Adrian Crawford. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.